Good morning. Good to see you all here on this bright Sunday morning. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. 1 Peter 1.22 Finger Foods and the DVD on Life of Samson this evening at 6. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7. I see Andrea's number there. Well, financial note, acts and facts are here for May. Are you game? Going bowling on Friday night, May the 17th, 630 to 8 p.m. at Gerlax. $3 per per... What can you do for $3? You can't do much for $3. $3 per person per game. Uh, I'm sorry, for two games. Uh, sign up on the helps board. That's the one right outside behind the piano here. And so we'll know how many lanes... To reserve the grill and concessions are available there, of course, at additional charge. So you can come and watch, like I may do, or bowl. Anything else this morning? What's this? That's mine. That's yours. Okay. I will not steal your thunder this morning. <laughs> oh, that's right. You just said that three seconds ago. No choir tonight. No choir tonight. Our scripture for meditation is found in 1 Corinthians. Read the, first, the 13th chapter.
Let's stand and ask the Lord to bless us as we worship. Ken, can I ask you to open for us today? Almighty God and dear Father, we come before you this morning just uh, indeed giving thanks. We, we give thanks for this, another opportunity to gather in your name and for praise and for worship. We gather together in unity, unity in the faith, unity in the spirit, unity in doctrine, and in unity in that free and sovereign grace of Christ. We ask your continued blessings uh, for this church, supplying the spiritual needs, financial needs, practical needs of this church. We ask your blessing on us here as we gather, and we ask you to bless Pastor Fred's message this morning. But be food for our souls and encouragement to us. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ this morning and that redeeming work he's done for us. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Take your brown hymnal this morning and turn to number 352. 352 in the brown. 352.
Mercy. You've seen your hand for the last couple weeks, and you're the first one that I saw this morning. Yes, ma'am. Do you have a favorite hymn? Take time to be holy. All right. Do we know what hymnal that's in? Is it in the brown? Take time to be holy. Not. Yep, in the brown. Four four one. Four four one in the brown. Do you have a reason for this hymn this morning? Amen. Our lives get so busy we forget, don't we? 441. It's in here. I know it is. 
scripture reading this morning is from 1 Peter, and we'll be reading verses 17, 1 Peter 1, we'll be reading verses 17 through 25, 1887 in the Pew Bible. Did me today? You got it. Yes, please stand with me. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply, from the heart, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God, for all men are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever, and this is the word that was preached to you. Um, If you have a blue hymnal near you, take a blue hymnal. If you don't, um, you may have gotten a a photocopy of a hymn this morning. And if you don't have either, raise your hand and we'll try to get you one. If you have the blue hymnal, it's number 430 in the blue hymnal. I got one.
Our scripture text this morning is 1 Peter 1, verses 17 and following. In our last study, we looked at Jesus as the Lamb of eternity and time. We learned that time references in Scripture are important because they tell us something of how God's eternal plan unfolds, how it moves from design to implementation. Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world to be the Lamb of God who would be sacrificed to atone for sin. And we drew out four implications of that. Number one, an appointed lamb implies an appointed people for whom the lamb is going to be sacrificed. Number two, an appointed lamb or people implies a personal salvation. We learned that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life and they were written there before the creation of the world. Now that you talk about pre-planning, that's really pre-planning. Only God can do Things like that. Number three, an appointed lamb implies but one savior, one people. And if you reject him, you are doomed. Because there's only one savior. Despite what men say about various holy men that they bring to the fore. And number four, we learn that an appointed lamb, sacrifice for people and payment for their sin, implies... A secured inheritance in glory for all who believe. It's secure. It's secure. So the gospel invitation is, whoever will may come, and of all who come, none will be rejected. Isn't that a wonderful truth? People, I've met people, talked to people where they say, well, I don't know, you know, if you knew my life, I don't think God would want me and his family. And... I say to them something in the fact, well, God knows your life. There's not, a th- there's not a thing you have done or a thing you have said that he doesn't know it. And yet the invitation is whoever will may come. But you see, that's the problem. The sinners are not willing to come lest their dark deeds be exposed by the light of Jesus who said, I am the light of the world. They don't want their sins exposed. But you know, if they're not going to be exposed, they won't be forgiven either. You have to have them revealed to God so he doesn't miss one for for which he dies. We learned that he is the Lamb of Eternity. That is, he was appointed to be the eternal Son of God to come and, and give his life for his people. But then he also was the lamb of time. He didn't stay in eternity. He has come. He has lived a righteous and sinless life. Excuse me. He has died. He's been raised from the dead. He has ascended back into glory to prepare a place for his people. In other words, God executed his plan. The lamb of eternity became the lamb of time. Our space Our history has been invaded by the eternal God. Redemption has been accomplished. 
Now the question comes today then, what can be said of our response to all that God has done? What should be our reaction? That's what we want to talk about this morning. And we come to God's word. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. These are histories to which we're reading, but they're histories that reach into the future and touch our lives. Because Peter, among the other apostles, was also a prophet. And you, O Lord, gave him things to say about our generation and our people and about all people that believe or disbelieve, as the case may be. So we're not surprised or shouldn't be at outcomes. So bless us by being with us today. I pray that you will draw us and make us one of your children if we're not. I pray that you will grant us faith if we don't have any faith. I pray that you will grant us repentance so that we'll turn away from our sin. Because we can't take our sin to glory with us. It has to be left behind. It has to be something as part of our past for which Christ has died. I pray that you'll help us to see that. Heaven is a holy place and we're not holy but we need to be we can be holy in position with jesus christ and in time holy in practice when we're with you in glory honor yourself this day and exalt the gospel we pray amen we're talking this morning about the subject born again and I've listed it, born again to deeply love. There's a purpose for us to be born again. Let me put it this way, firstly, that God's grace found you. If you're a believer here this morning, it found me. As I was reading 1 Peter chapter 1 again, I was struck by many references to God working his plan to save his chosen people. If you follow along with me, In verse 1, Peter begins by identifying his readers as God's elect strangers in the world. So he's talking to a specific people. There's an obvious disconnect between a believer and a person living in the world. Yeah, we live in the world, but we are not of the world any longer. No, now we're strangers in the world. We're here. Yes, but we're foreigners trying to make our way back home. Say, well, what do you mean we're strangers? We're strangers in terms of the philosophy or the thinking of the world. What changed us is that we have been chosen, verse 2. Chosen by God's foreknowledge and foreordination, to obedience to Christ and to the sprinkling by his blood. In other words, to be forgiven and declared righteous. This leads to, results in new birth, verse 3, which is the product of God's mercy. A living hope has come to be because of the resurrection victory of Jesus, our substitute. An inheritance is thus reserved for us in heaven where it's safe, It is safe from all those things in life that would otherwise compromise or may even jeopardize it. 
Look at verse 4. And even when we have to suffer some form of trial, verse 6, it's only with the good result that our faith is strengthened, able to praise God for his sustaining grace, verse 7. This salvation is not an afterthought with God, but predicted by his Old Testament prophets, even though they didn't understand all the particulars of their own prophecies. Verse 10, think about that. Shows that the words that they gave, the prophecies they gave, were not of their own understanding and their own thoughts. They were giving forth the words of God. And they didn't always understand their own prophecies. I find that very interesting. Yet they were content to learn that they were serving the converts to come in our age. Who would hear the gospel through the apostles. Verse 12. And their writings. They were happy to be of service to you and me. In other words. Isn't that wonderful? They weren't just thinking, uh, Lord, uh, what's in it for me? They gave forth the good promises of God, knowing that, "Mm, I don't quite understand all of this, but it has something to do with uh, the future and the people who will believe in the future and become God's children in the future. And I'm happy to have it that way. All of this was destined for those to whom grace was given. Verse 13. People called to be holy as God is holy. Verse 16. Something unheard of since the fall of Adam and Eve. And all made possible not because of a monetary payment of silver or gold, but by the payment of the priceless blood of Christ the Lamb, without blemish, without defect. Verse 19. So chosen to be the ransom price before the creation of the world. Verse 20. Do you think anything accidental here? I don't see anything accidental. I see on purpose, on purpose, on purpose. I see planned, planned, planned. No accident, no accident, no accident. This is God working out his plan. God in pursuit of you, by name, seeking you, calling you out of the world, setting your feet on the solid footing of God himself, transforming your membership from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It is Peter's way of telling us that we have been born again, verse 23. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, which means... An imperishable seed. Mm. That means that nothing can alter or destroy this new spiritual life that you possess in Christ. Do you know that nothing in life, in our life, lasts like this? Nothing lasts like this. In fact, that is why Jesus gave this exhortation in Luke 12. He says, sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Luke 12, verse 33. Where are we putting our deposits? 
in this world, in our local bank, or in heaven. When we think on these individual things, but more importantly on the collective whole, we cannot conclude that happenstance accomplished all this. No, God's grace has accomplished it as the result of an intentional, planned out pursuit by God himself. On purpose. Now how can you not love a God like that? How can you not be thankful to a God like that? Grace, by its very definition, means undeserved, unearned. Grace, a gift, a gift, a gift. The psalmist wrote it this way. Here's his testimony. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and he heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Psalm 40, the first four verses. True, true, true. The songwriter W. Spencer Walton writes in his hymn, He washed the bleeding sin wounds and poured in oil and wine. He whispered to assure me, I've found thee, thou art mine. I never heard a sweeter voice. It made my aching heart rejoice. Oh, the love that sought me. Oh, the blood that bought me. Oh, the grace that brought me to the full. Wondrous grace that brought me to the fold. There are those who protest any teaching that in grace God draws sinners to himself in an irresistible way. They talk of such things as, well, you know, God is a gentleman. He will not force his salvation on anyone. You have to invite Christ. You have to come to him of your own free will. Let me ask, is the will of man free? Can a person make choices that are completely outside of and opposite his or her nature? God says they can't. Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? And the implied answer is, uh, well, uh, of 
Of course not. And then he gives the punchline. Neither can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Jeremiah 13, 23. And God is saying through Jeremiah that sinners like the black man of Ethiopia and like the leopard in the jungle are what they are in appearance by nature. By nature. It's part of who and what they are. And all the willing in the world to be different, a black man willing to be white, a leopard willing his spots be gone, that will not make it happen. The same is true of sinners who are accustomed to doing evil. Are they suddenly going to choose to do good? No, Jesus puts it this way, whoever sins, whoever that is, whoever sins is the slave of sin. John 8, verse 34. Believing God when he speaks and trusting Jesus alone as Savior, those are good things to do, aren't they? Is the person who is a slave to sin, who is accustomed, that is, it's his habit, to do evil, is he going to make those choices without a radical change of nature? Not ever. People are what they are. So, Mr. Gentleman God had better exert some pressure, some persuasion, else no one will ever be saved. Think about it. We need to be thankful for the irresistible grace of God that drew us to his son Jesus. The hymn writer, oh the grace that brought me to the fold. Or in the words of Jesus, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you to bear fruit, and it's going to be fruit that will last. John 15, verse 16. John confirms this saying, we love Because he first loved us. 1 John 4 verse 19. What is he saying? He's saying God acts, we react. God moves first, God moves foremost, and all of our spiritual movements are secondary and receive their energy from God's own Holy Spirit. The only free will that sinners possess is freedom to sin. And so we need to be thankful that God's will overrides our own as he commands us to believe and repent. And in that command instills the irresistible, effectual drawing power of the Holy Spirit 
so that it can be said of us, as it is said of all who believe, that they are born of the Spirit. John 3, verse 8. Born of the Spirit. It's his work. Wow, that's a great mercy for which we need to be ever thankful. I'm thankful God was not gentle with me in my sin. I'm thankful for his pursuit, for his snagging me, for his wrestling me to the ground. I'm thankful that he would not let me go until I completely surrendered to his will for my life. One day a group of people asked Jesus, Well, you know, what must we do to do the works God requires? Here's Jesus' answer. The work of God is this. Here it is. To believe in the one he has sent. John 6, verse 28, 29. Hmm. Seems simple. The work of God is this. To believe in the one he has sent. Fifteen verses later, he holds, told this same group, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. John 6 verse 44. So that tells me we ought to pray that God draws us, right? We need to pray that he will latch on to us and never let us go. Until we surrender to his will. Because that alone is salvation. God's grace must find you and bring you and change you and save you. God, 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 God has to do it. And it's a legitimate prayer if you're going to the only person that can do it. It's a legitimate prayer to ask him to do it. Now, this is precisely what Peter says to his people, to his readers, that God's grace changed them. God's grace did it. Look at verse 23. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. You have been born again. God is a person who keeps his word to a people. If he says to sinners, as he does say to them, that faith in Christ and repentance of sin will result in eternal salvation, then that is exactly what will occur. Verse 25, Peter says, This is the word that was preached to you. So all we have to do is discover what the message of the apostles was as they went about their assigned ministry for Christ. Because by believing their message and acting upon it, we shall be saved. Okay, what was the message of the apostles? I want you to consider some of this. Consider firstly the account of the Philippian jailer. I'm sure you're familiar with this account. 
Paul and Silas were thrown into prison for preaching the gospel. So they're in the jailer's care, so to speak. And we read, he then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now he's been listening, right? Because <laughs> Paul and Silas, while they're in prison, they, you know, they're shouting through the bars. They're teaching other people in the other cells about the gospel. And the jailer's listening to all of this. And he can't take it anymore. So he unlocks his cell, brings them out, and he says, What must I do to be saved? Can you tell me? Can you help me? And they replied, I'm reading it for you here, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house. He set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Acts 16, verse 35. Now obviously you see that the jailer has a lot of leeway here in how he treats prisoners. It's his jail. If he wants to unlock the door and let them out and take them to his house and feed them and wash them and clothe them and do all of those things, he can do that. He's the boss. So when he approaches Paul and Silas and he says, well, how how do I get saved? The message of Paul was, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe. Not do this, not do that. You know, not say so many Hail Marys. Not do so many penance. Not change your life and do good. But believe. Writing to the citizens of Rome, Paul exhorted them, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, verse 9. And in verse 14, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they've not heard? And he answers his own questions. How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And so the gospel is preached. But in the preaching, there is a call to respond. You must believe, you must act upon the stipulation of the gospel. It's good news that a Savior has come and that he has died for sinners. But if you don't believe it, if you don't trust it for yourself, the good news will pass you by as surely as the promised land passed the Israelites by, of whom the writer of Hebrews tells us, We also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them. Why? Because what they heard had no value to them because they did not combine it with faith. Hebrews 4 verse 2. Uh, What's that mean? Well, it just means they heard it, but they didn't believe it. Uh, 
That's what it means. No faith. He goes on. Hebrews 4 verse 3. Now we who have believed enter that rest. The rest of God. Just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger. They the Israelites shall never enter my rest. What's he declaring? Well, he's saying something like this. As surely as the unbelieving Israelites angered God to declare under oath that they would never enter God's eternal rest that he had prepared for them, so we who do believe are promised by God to enter his true rest found in the forgiveness of Christ. It's a comparison. Don't be like these Israelites. They heard the same gospel. But how they responded, wow, that's a world of difference. <laughs> now we're preaching the gospel to you. Now are you going to do this? Are you going to obey God? Or are you going to follow those wicked Israelites that should have known better but didn't? Now, but either way, God keeps his word, and either way, he will get glory from the outcome. Faith or lack thereof will make or break you as the gospel message is preached to you. Peter's audience was born again, verse 23, of imperishable seed. God does not break his promises. Those who heed the gospel call to repent and believe will be born anew and nothing thereafter will ever change that. Look at verse 24 and 25. Peter says, all men are like grass. All their glories like the flowers of the field. Well, what about grass and flowers? The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Peter saying what we preach to you is, you know, it's solid. It's going to be here tomorrow, the next day, the next week, the next month, the next year, the next many years. It's going to be there for all of eternity because God never changes his mind. Unlike the perishable weed and flower seeds of the fields, here today, gone tomorrow, God's people and their salvation are produced and sustained by the sure and lasting word of God. He said it. He will accomplish it. Did you know that God does not lie? Oh, more importantly, did you know that the reason God does not lie is that he cannot lie? Two texts in scripture. Titus 1 verse 2, Hebrews 6 verse 18 say the same thing. Let me read it for you. It is impossible for God to to lie. Well, how can that be? Well, it's because God is the personification of truth. He is truth by his very nature. Just as sinners sin by nature, God always speaks the truth by nature. He cannot do otherwise. So you need to take note of his promises. You need to act upon them. And blessings that he promised are yours. 
Now, it takes God's grace to convince sinners to believe and act upon the promises of God. So of all who have done this, it can be said that God's grace not only drew you to Christ, but enabled you to change from skeptic to believer. A lot of Christians can put their finger right on the day that that happened. Some don't know. They just know it did happen because their life changed radically. But either way, reality is there. Both thoughts occur in Titus 2, verse 11 and following. For the grace of God, writes Paul, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. There's the change. While we wait, we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's where our generation is. We're in the wait mode. For the appearance of Christ. Now what's the great change. That God's grace. Makes. Well. Peter lists some things in in the text. Look at verse 22. Here's a great change. Sincere love for the brethren. Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers. I read that and I ask the question, is there any other kind of love but sincere? And the answer is, oh yeah, there is. Unfortunately, Yes, there is. Our world is full of people professing what is nothing more than phony love. Trump would call it fake news. Right? His favorite phrase. People caught in an adulterous affair will say to their spouse, Well, you know, she meant nothing to to me. You you know I'm in love with you. Oh, really? What's the basic premise of love? 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. An adulterous or lying spouse is defective in love. Phony love is also evident when people put forth love as the explanation for gratifying their lusts. The adulterous woman in Proverbs 7 who comes out to the street corner dressed like a prostitute says to the unsuspecting young man, I'm reading scripture now, I came out to meet you. I looked for you and I have found you. I've covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us drink deep of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. 
My husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. Proverbs 7, verse 15 and following. This isn't love at all. It's nothing more than lust for sexual gratification. But no one says, I'm in lust with you. The language of lust and the language of love is absolutely identical. They both say, I, I love you. But lust is phony love. It is self-gratifying love. It is a strange love indeed when we read in the paper of an estranged father who takes the life of his wife or children or both and then says in his defense, you know, I did it because I love them. I'm so sick of hearing stuff like that. I'm sure they would have preferred to stay alive. You say, well, these things, these kind of things, they don't happen in the family of God. Oh, no? No? Let me read it for you from 2 Samuel 13. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. When he made no headway in seducing Tamar, Jonadab advised him to feign sickness and request David to send Tamar to nurse him back to health. When Tamar brought him as his food, he grabbed her, And she protested, what about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? What about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please, speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. I'm reading scripture. He refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, I'm reading scripture. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up, get out. No, she said to him, sending me away would be greater wrong than what you've already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and he said, Get this woman out of here and bolt the door after her. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And she was wearing a richly ornamented robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. 2 Samuel 13, verse 13 and following. Phony love is everywhere, even among God's people. I have to tell you that many times when the families have left our church, after being with us for a long period of time, 10 years, let's say, as they're walking out the door, they look at me and they say, Pastor, we want you to know that we love you.
Strange love indeed that tramples on a decade of spiritual ministry and prayer and counseling and physical help and more. Paul says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt of love for one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Romans 13, verse 8 and 4. Did you know that a church that loses a long-standing member family experiences much of the same trauma as a couple goes through that's going through divorce? That's true. The church begins to reel from the pain and sadness and discouragement can become overwhelming. Self-examination can be introspective and demoralizing. People begin to look for ways that they could have prevented the departure. They look for people to blame, usually the pastor or some other leadership figure. They have become heartsick and sad sick and maybe even depressed. All this while the family who left the church skips merrily on its way, joining up with some other congregation they think will be utopia. Or more understanding, or more relevant, or whatever. Now John puts it this way, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. First John 2, verse 19. Well, that's true, but it doesn't make it easier on the church to know that. Phony love is everywhere. How wonderful then, how wonderful to hear Peter speak of a sincere love for the brothers. Of course, the sisters too, Sincere love for the brothers and sisters of the faith. Well, sincere love is anything but phony love. Sincere love is a through thick and thin type of love that knows more about sticking than it does about leaving. The Greek word here for sincere is very interesting. It's a, it's a combined word. A, which means not. It's a prefix, a. So if you say something is amoral, for example, you mean it's, it's not moral. A means not. Well, this is the word. It's a, a. And the Greek word is hupokrinomai. So, oh yeah, I'm going to remember that. You will because we get our word hypocrite from hypocrinoi. So together, by the way, it's a theorat that's a theatrical term meaning to play a part. So together, a love that is not play acting, not hypocritical, 
or untrue. As kids, we, when we thought someone was staging their actions, we would say, oh, he's faking. Remember that? We'd say, he's faking. She's faking. He's not for real. May I say that true Christian love is for real. It's not play acting. This is why James tells us that if anyone has material possessions and he sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? 1 John 3, verse 17. How could you play act like that? Or Solomon, the wise man, tells us wounds from a friend friend can be trusted. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Proverbs 27, verse 6. Wow, there's a mouthful. You mean my true friends may sometimes hurt me? Say things that hurt me or correct me or chide me? While my enemies just kiss me up and down. You're wonderful. We love you. Stab, stab. Et tu, brute? Sincere love is very much lacking in the world, sadly, sometimes in the church. You know, the privacy policies which all the banks and merchants and credit card companies send out with your billings have arisen because people have made a cult out of privacy. I can remember as a child walking down our street, everyone knew everybody. Who was married to whom? How many kids they had? What school they attended? If they were an A student or an F student? (laughs) People knew your doctor, they knew your pharmacy, they knew your barber, they knew your employer. There wasn't much they didn't know about you. But today we have the privacy cult. That has moved into the church as well. We have people thinking, if they don't say it, they're thinking it. It's none of your business. We've closed the door on letting people into our lives so that even if they wanted to love and they want to help you in tangible ways, you wouldn't let them. And we use the explanation, oh, I I didn't want to bother anyone with my problems. But sincere love doesn't mind being bothered. In fact, it rather enjoys the opportunity to be of service to others. I think long and hard when I hear of a church being ridiculed as being cold and indifferent towards people. 
And I wonder in my heart if the problem is that those who level that kind of criticism are not themselves the ones who keep everyone at arm's length. You know, sincere love is a two-way street. Paul said to the Corinthian church, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. We've opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak to you as my children. Open wide your hearts also. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 11 and following. It's got to be more than just a one-way street. The world has its share of phony love, and the Bible affirms that what is most attractive to the onlooking world when they look at the church is to see genuine love in action. John writes by this, All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. John 13, verse 35. Interesting, isn't it? Not if you love them. That's not what they're looking for. They're looking to see if you love one another. How is that? Because the world doesn't love anyone but itself. That's why. <laughs> Remember Paul's description of the way we were before God saved us? This was me and it was, your, it was you too. At one time he says we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Titus 3, verse 3. We don't like to admit it, but that's where we were. So when the world finds a group of people who genuinely love one another, it's almost a psychological meltdown. <laughs> they, can't, they can't fathom it. They are looking for love in all the wrong places. Sex, liquor, drugs, money, power. And then suddenly they find it in a place of last resort. The place of desperation to them. The church of all places. And it blows them away. John wrote, if anyone says, I love God. Yet he hates his brother. He is a liar. Preach it, John. Preach it. <laughs> For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 1 John 4, verse 20. But where there is practical and sincere love, the world is stymied by it because all they have is this. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers, and anyone who does not love remains in death. 1 John 3, verse 14. That's our world. It's all around us. And what does Peter mean in verse 22 when he talks about deep love from the heart? Can love be sincere yet superficial? Can it be genuine but not very deep? 
Well, one thing we need to know about the gifts and fruit of the Spirit which God implants in us when we become a new creation in Christ is that none of these graces come to us in their full-blown, mature, adult state. In other words, we have the seedlings of all these godly traits in our new self, our new nature, but there's room, can I say it this way, much room for growth and maturity. Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, he writes, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's right for me to feel this way about you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the right, with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Philippians 1, verse 6 and 5. So he's saying, yeah, you get it in seed form, but it can grow, and it should grow. And I want to see it grow in your lives. God must complete his work. Their love can abound more and more. Again, to the church of Thessalonica, may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 12. And in the fourth chapter, he says, Finally, brothers, we instruct you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and we urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. First Thessalonians 4, verse 1 and following. And in the second book, Paul references God's answers to prayer. About this, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Second Thessalonians 1, verse 3. So we start out at seed form, but we grow. It becomes a sprout. The sprout grows bigger. It becomes a bush, and so on. So without a doubt, love for the brethren it has room to grow, it does, and, and has room to mature. And Peter's expression, love one another deeply from the heart. Wow. Very convicting. Where do you place in the progressive scale of love for God's people? Down on the first tier, well, I have love for, but not overly zealous about it. Or are you at the second tier, sincere love that, well, it's not phony, but it's rather shallow and ineffectual, but it's sincere. 
or are you striving, verse in our text here, to love more deeply, more deeply, more personally, more sacrificially, not just catering to your friends, let's say, but reaching out to make new friends in Christ. Peter's challenge to us all is that as Christians, we are born for this. This kind of love emulates the love of Christ, and we are never more Christ-like than when we love each other unconditionally, unselfishly, and sacrificially. No strings attached. Agape love. I'm going to love you even if you don't love me back. That's agape love. I'm going to work at loving May the Lord grant us that love. Thank you, dear Lord, for your word. Thank you for the challenge. It is a challenge. Because in our best moments of truth, we have to acknowledge that we don't love like this. Certainly not always. Sometimes we rise to the occasion. Most times we don't. Forgive us for those times we don't. Let's take Peter's warning to, to heart. Love more deeply, love more seriously, love more sacrificially, love more unselfishly. We should think of your love, how you left the thrones of glory. You left that pristine environment to come to our sinful world. Why? Because you love sinners. And you couldn't fathom that your people would die and spend eternity in hell away from you and your father. So you came to rectify that. You came to give of yourself as the atoning sacrifice. You came to pay for something that you didn't do, but we did You came to pay for our sins. We thank you for that. We love you for that. We want to live for you for that. And I pray that you'll bless the truth to to our souls. And if there are any here today that don't know you, Lord, grant them the faith to believe. Grant them the repentance to turn away from their sin and to come to Christ. And just a simple prayer. Lord, save me. Lord, take away my sins. Lord, forgive me. Amen. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the Brown Hymnal. We're at number 364. 364. Let's stand together as we sing.
sang it to him. We need to pray that to him too. I remember John Tucker, he would often say, Fred, I often thank the Lord and I tell him, I love him. I love him. We need to think those thoughts. It's good for our soul and it's worship of our Savior. See you tonight at six. Amen.